How can the voices and experiences of Black girls be celebrated? Christy Lauren Adams is a speaker, advocate, chaplain, and ordained Baptist minister. A graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, Christy currently serves as the Firestone Endowment Chaplain and Instructor of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. In this episode, I speak with Christy about her book, Parable of the Brown Girl, The Sacred Lives of Girls of Color, in which she lifts up the stories of young Black girls so that they can be heard and honored. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Christy, thank you for joining me here today for this conversation and doing it online instead of in person, since we are both sheltering in place, as they say. I'm just going to jump right in. And in the introduction to your book, you tell us that God has called you to build relationships and work as an advocate for Black girls who often find themselves on the margins. How did you discover that call? Um, I think I discovered it sort of falling into it, you know, people have different calling stories. And for me, you know, I honestly, I think it started with people pouring into me as a young black girl and being able to be on the receiving end of it. So I, I would say it definitely started there. But then I talk about in the intro of the book, one of the earlier points of my career was right after I graduated from Temple University. I was at moved to Virginia Beach to do a program there, but I was working at the same time at a residential treatment facility. And majority of the young girls on the unit that I worked at identify as Black girls. And just being there in that space, and they were one step from juvenile detention. It was an unfortunate circumstance and place to, to, to wind up in as, as a young teenage girl. But to be there on that unit with them for about six months with all of their combined challenges and issues, I mean, it was literally the, it was so overwhelming, you know. But it was once I started to get to know those girls a little bit better and, you know, reading their charts and not just treating it like it was a job, you know, it was then that I, I really felt like the time I felt like I was called to, to youth advocacy but I didn't make it as specific, I think, early on to say Black girls. I knew it was youth in general. I knew, you know, of course, I, you know, always felt drawn to young girls. But for me, I never in the beginning would say young Black girls because I just felt like, well, maybe I'm just saying that because I'm one, you know, and I feel comfortable with that particular demographic. It wasn't until a little bit later that I was like, no, 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 I, I th this has to do with what was poured into my life and what issues I can speak to particularly because I was a young black girl and a black woman, at, you know, so there, there are specific issues that I can speak to that would be different than, than, um, than anyone else. So that was where I started. The book is called The Parable of the Brown Girl, The Sacred Lives of Girls of Color. And so you interact with um, or inspired by the parables of Jesus. So how do you come to see a connection between the parables of Jesus and the everyday lives of black girls? Yeah, for me, I have always been drawn to the gospels. Um, I've said that, you know, numerous times when I've um, talked about this book and how Jesus spoke and, and taught and particularly in parables. And I actually, when I was counseling, I worked at a counseling center for two years as a pastoral counselor, and 
the, the girls and the conversations that I would have with them. I remember saying to myself, you know, what if Jesus met one of these girls and, you know, wondering like what that intersection would look like, particularly since in Jesus's parables, they are, you know, stories about um, people that, you know, find themselves on the margins and, and not just in the parables, but throughout the gospel, Jesus is always encountering someone who would be considered like the least of these. And so I would, I would feel that way, you know, when I was having conversations with girls thinking, wow, what if Jesus met one of them? And that's, that's where the parable idea came from, because, you know, I've always been a big believer that there are so many stories in the, in the text, and then there are stories outside of the text of encounters that people had with Jesus that we, you know, will never read about, and even ones that continue to occur today. And I feel like just based off of the wisdom that these girls have shared with me and just how they're able to see God through their experiences, it, to me, it, it feels like they've met Jesus, you know? And so that's where the idea of the parable of the brown girl came about, because I would think to myself, okay, what if, what if Jesus encountered one of these girls? What would it, what would it be titled, you know? Um, their section in the, in the, in the gospels, what would that look like? And, um, so I felt like, you know, it would probably be called parable the Brown girl, because if somebody saw one of these girls just off bat, they would see them and, and see Brown first. Right. Um, as far as their aesthetic is concerned. And, um, so that's where the, the title came from. Also in the introduction, you give a brief explanation for your use of both, um, black girl and Brown girl. Share your understanding those terms, I think that would be helpful to the listeners. So I, I say that up front just so that people aren't confused because obviously brown right now, when we talk about brown as far as ethnicity, we're talking about a, a wide spectrum. And so uh, I wanted to make that distinctive that, you know, when I, when I say parable to brown girl, that I was specifically talking about aesthetic, right? The color, because the color is not black that you see, you know, of when it comes to black people, right? You see just sort of a rainbow of brown shades. And so, so I make it very distinctive throughout the book. I'm talking about black girls because I'm talking about black um, as far as identity is concerned. But I, I'm, I say brown is, is more of an aesthetic and like an illustrative choice of word um, when it comes to the title. But all throughout the book, I, I make sure, you know, each of the, of the chapter titles is, has brown girl in it you know, really more for the poetic um, nature of it. But um, when, I'm, when I'm specifically addressing these girls, I'm, I'm talking about black girls, girls that um, are, are ethnically a part of the diaspora. In each chapter of your book, um, you tell a story or a parable, if you will, of a young black girl. And through each of these personal stories, the reader encounters a reality or common struggle of black girls and women. Um, your use of story makes these realities and your theological reflection on them accessible. And for that, I want to say thank you. And instead of today, instead of briefly touching on each chapter, I'd like to spend a little more time in at least one of the stories that you tell. And um, it was hard to pick, but I settled on the first chapter, which is the parable of the weak brown girl, where you tell the story of Deborah who's a nine-year-old girl. Would you tell us her story? Yeah, so Deborah, obviously that's an anonymous name, a pseudonym, but Deborah is a girl that I met when I was counseling in the counseling center that I mentioned earlier. And her mother brought her in. She was going through some just personal challenges in general, wanted her daughter to be able to talk to someone that wasn't a family member. And so we, we spoke for a while and 
the young woman had, and I say young woman because she's only nine, but she had just like so much wisdom, but she was very um, articulate in the sense that she was able to really speak to her emotions very clearly in ways that I just, it took me a really long time as an adult to even get to. But her home, her home life was a little bit difficult. So her, you know, she, they lived in, I think maybe a one bedroom and, you know, it was always her and her mother. And then when her mother's boyfriend uh, was released from jail and her, her mother's boyfriend comes to live with them. And so then Deborah's sleeping on the couch and she's not getting the attention that she was getting before and frustrated. And there's other challenges. Her, her father um, actually lives in a more of like a suburban environment with his new family, right? New, new, new daughter, another daughter he has with his, um, with his current wife and just her feeling unwanted when it comes to them, just her, her, her feeling unwanted altogether. And so um, Deborah and I had one conversation where, um, you know, she had drawn a picture of herself and in her journal and then she had a little gun to her head and it was a little stick figure and, you know, I was super um, taken back by that and, um, you know, just talked to her about where she was emotionally. But in the middle of that conversation, she asked me, you know, why would God make me a warrior when I'm really just weak, you know? And um, the question was so profound. It threw me completely off because I just wasn't expecting that to come out of a nine-year-old's mouth. And so I actually took some time to reflect on it. I didn't respond right away. It was probably another week before I was able to come back and, and, and actually speak to her with any level of confidence in a response to that question. And it took me a week because I, it was a question that I wanted to know about my own life. You know, like there are times where I've felt very weak and one want to know why did God make me a warrior, right? What, whatever we might feel like warrior means when it comes to our womanhood. So I went back to her and I, I told her, I said, warriors are weak. And I, you know, just let her know just because you're a warrior doesn't mean that you aren't weak. Just because you're strong doesn't mean that there's no room for your weakness and that God makes room for her in both her strength and her weakness. And we had a nice little conversation about that. It was like this deeply existential theological conversation that I'm having with this nine-year-old girl. And from that, I was able to write in my own like, you know, personal reflection of the question about, wow, like this, this nine-year-old young black girl, you know, is, is, is toiling with the, the idea that she can't be vulnerable, that she can't, you know, express parts of herself that aren't strong. And then it got me uh, revisiting the, the idea of the strong black woman, which is a concept that has you know pervaded for a very very long time and how they're like you know there's good goodness to being looked at as strong right but then also just like you know what comes with that to the casualties that, that come alongside that that mantra that we carry and how it it doesn't leave a lot of room for vulnerability and 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 us just being being right weak or whatever it is that we might be so just that one question from that one little girl just sparked so much thought and soul searching that I, that, that it had to start off the book with that chapter. Well, and I appreciated how you, you share that wrestling in the book and you do, you do talk about the stereotype of the strong black woman. Where does that stereotype come from? Yeah. Well, in the book, um, I, I try to go back and, um, there, there actually is another book by Shaniqua Barnes, um, 
called too heavy a burden or too heavy a yoke. It's just all about the strong black woman because it really in and of itself is a sort of like its own discourse. But it really, truly just like it it dates back. I mean, it dates back to 1619, right? And and when the uh, the start of slavery and black women having to sort of carry the carry their families when they're, um, you know, when their husbands are being lynched or, um, you know, being auctioned off and they're having to be there to take care of the children, you know, um, and having to be sort of the matriarch of the family. So it sort of goes back to that. And that idea, I think it was created to, I think, to, to sort of validate the abuses Black women endured um, and the resiliency that Black women displayed um, not just in the idea of just having to carry their families, but also the resiliency in the midst of all of the hardship and struggle and abuse, um, yet they continue to carry family, right? Continue to raise their children. So this idea that these, like, you know, Black women possess this, this, this superhuman strength, right? In the midst of all that, I think it just it goes all the way back to, to then. And then, it can, and then it has continued and pervaded throughout, you know, throughout generations. One thing that the story highlights is how there's a conflicting dynamic for Black girls when it comes to the topic of feminism or female empowerment. You know, you've connected that to this history of the, the idea of the strong Black woman. But can you talk about that dynamic and why it's complicated? You know, I, I think about some commercials that I've seen, maybe not recently, I just remember seeing some sort of women in power commercials and they were feminist in nature. In fact, in the fact that they, they used very strong language for lack of a better word, you know, for no pun intended, um, about women being strong and powerful and you too can be a leader and push your way to, you know, to the front, that type of thing, which is a really empowering message. Right. But when, you bring black women into that conversation, it changes a little bit, right? So I go back to be strong, be a leader, push your way to the front. It comes off as aggressive, right? You know, it comes off as too aggressive. I don't just say aggressive, it comes off too aggressive. And it is characterized as aggression in black girls. So it's in one instance, it's, it's feminist power. And then for in another instance, it's, it's, it's aggression. And so there's an imbalance in that. I think, it's, I think it's unintentional, you know, because you do want to make sure that we're empowering all women and girls, you know, to make sure that they're vocal and that they, you know, are, are not just being seen and not heard. But, you know, even just the phrase seen and not heard, right? Like, well, when, when, when Black women are characterized, they're characterized as being heard first, you know, too loud. So there are some complicated dynamics that, that, that play out. You know, when I was at Princeton, I took a class called uh, Feminist Womanist, and that was when Mark Taylor taught it um, and Nancy Duff. You know, I remember thinking, I wonder why, why they call it Feminist Womanist, right? Even though I knew um, a little bit about womanism, the way that they shaped the class was very honoring of the complicated dynamics between the two. I don't think it was meant to, to be divisive. I, you know, I, I can't think of another word other than honoring. I really do think it was meant to honor and to point out how, how complicated one message can be, but it might mean something else to, mm-hmm. you know, another, di- mm-hmm. another group. Oh, that's great. I think you, in the book, is it here where you talk a little bit about growing up with the, the Disney stories and 
instead of just being rescued or being strong or do you want to say something about that? I mean, I think that can help people understand. Right. You know, growing up, um, cause somebody had said to me when I, when they were really looking over the book and I was naming the Disney characters that didn't look like me growing up and they said, Oh, but you had, um, princess Tiana, right? So I'm going around in a circle because when, when, when Princess and the Frog came out, um, we, we were excited. And, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, I wasn't appreciative of, of Princess Tiana at the time. But even her character was, you know, displayed a certain, like, I don't need a man. I'm working in all these jobs to get my business going. And that's a good thing. But even in that, right, you saw a difference between her and the other characters in the way that they have been displayed. For me growing up, it was Ariel. It was, you know, Princess Jasmine Belle, you know. And even though Princess Jasmine, I think I mentioned in the book, you know, she she had slightly darker skin complexion, you know, but for the most part, you know, none of the none of those none of those women like looked like me. And so I had this conversation with a just a, a group of girls at my school, young black girls, and just asked them how they felt about Disney movies and the comments that they made about them, you know, about how not only did they not look like me, but they didn't act like me. You know, they didn't have my hair, they didn't have my skin. And, you know, they, it, it never occurred that, you know, that they too could be rescued, even though this idea of being rescued is problematic, right? But to them, they didn't get that message that who they were in their aesthetic, as well as in their persona, was, you know, capable of being rescued in the ways that, women that looked like, you know, Belle or, or behaved, you know, like Ariel um, could, you know, so they didn't have, they, they didn't feel like they, there was any prince to come rescue them or that there was any room for that. You talk about the tension between strength and, and weakness and that sort of that strong is good weak is bad, but too strong then is not so good, right? You're too outspoken. And so, but you, you reflect on this theologically in a way that I think is helpful. So where do you see this tension between strength and weakness theologically? Yeah, see it, um, you know, in the, the scripture that talks about when we're weak, that God is strong, you know, um, there, there are a few scriptures that I think really do a great job of sort of highlighting. It, it talks about the, the tension between strength and weakness, but the idea that God makes room for us in our weakness because he's strong, because God is strong, right? So that it, it's okay, you know, but one of the things I sort of bring out is this, we, we've polarized, I think, weakness and strength, right? When we talk about the human experience and we, we, we divide them into these into these categories where they maybe have to be at odds with one another, but theologically that's just not the case, right? Where we have like the living example of Jesus Christ, who, you know, is king coming in on a donkey. You know, the Messiah, the savior of the whole world, sort of coming in, um, you know, being born into poverty in, in a manger, right, in a dirty manger, and just his whole existence is a weak existence but it's also strong at the same time, right? And so we have that, I think, in, in Jesus in general and how I think Jesus's, you know, just his existence gives us permission to be able to live in the tension of both. For me, that's 
that's good news, right? And for Black women, it is a theological sort of path to, to give us permission to be able to, to, to live in both, right? So, you know, what we see is that we're human, and so that means that we're, we, we're both strong and weak as human beings. Um, but we have to be able to have theological and spiritual permission to be able to do that because it just doesn't seem like we, we do a good job of that as human beings giving each other that sort of permission, you know? So, you know, when Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I'll give you rest, you know, um, I think, you know, Jesus knew that, you know, this is a really, it's difficult to be human, <laughs> you know, and that we need a way out and, and that he's our way out, you know, that we can turn to him when we're weak and when our souls are weary, but at the same time that it doesn't mean that we aren't strong at all. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that we you know, aren't, aren't still powerful, that we're both. And so and that's what I share with the girls all the time. You know, God makes room for us in both our weakness and our strength. What does it look like for Black women and girls, or people in general, to, to be strong like Jesus and weak like Jesus? I think it means to live as honestly and authentically as possible. I mean, you, you can't get a better question, a better time than living in a quarantine, right? When you wake up in the morning and you have days where you're like, all right, conquer the day, you know? Like, And then I'm laughing because I have it a lot now where, you know, I, I wake up and, you know, I've been going all day today. So today's one of my, okay, I woke up at 7.15 in the morning. I had classes and meetings and things and I feel good, you know? But tomorrow might be one of those days where I just don't feel like getting out of bed, you know? Um, and in conversations with friends, we've had more of those than we, than we normally would. And I think some, you know, it just depends on the circumstance, but, you know, we, we talk about that, um, you know, a few months ago, oh, I've, I've had, I've had my bad days, you know, but now it's like, no, I've had my bad days and I had about three of them out of the seven days this week, you know, that's what it means to be able to wake up and embrace it. And for me, it is okay if I feel if I'm not feeling it when I wake up in the morning, and I'm, it's it's not that I'm defeated. It's just that I have to be able to live in it and be honest with myself about it, and not try to pretend like I'm something that I'm not. So that's what it, I think that's what it means in the quarantine, and then even outside of outside of this space, whenever you know whatever normalcy will look like um, in everyday life. You know, it is being able to be honest with where I am emotionally and spiritually and personally and being able to sort of structure my days based, based on that reality. And then, and then on top of that, I think too, being able to not shame, shame myself or each other for that. You know, like I remember my supervisor when I worked at a, a, as a campus pastor in California years ago, and he said to me, you know, uh, right before I preached my first sermon, he said, you know, you can get up on the stage right now. It was like 3,000 students, right? And he said, you can fall flat on your face, and I will still believe that I chose the right person for the job. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like nobody had, I had never heard that that way before. And I feel that's the way that God looks at us, right? Like, it doesn't matter. You know, you're still the right person, no matter how you show up or how you fail or how you succeed. That's lovely. In writing this book, you share bits of your own story, as well as the stories of these young women. And as a reader, I sensed that you were gifting me with these stories. 
each being a treasure to be received. But in giving us these stories, what do you hope will happen? I mean, in, in other words, why did you write this book? And why did you kind of go out on a limb and, and share these stories and gift them to us? I would see it as paying it forward because it was they, they were gifted to me, you know? Not, not my own personal stories per se. I, I'm talking about even just the girls. Um, you know, because this is all throughout my career. So this is for over 15 years, but I'm thinking about just the one-on-one settings that I had, that I have with these girls. And, you know, they just, they don't have to share and how full I would feel when I would leave uh, a conversation and just be like, wow, they just really blessed me. Like, (laughs) like they didn't even realize, you know, they just were just being honest and in their honesty and their vulnerability it just, it, it changed something in me. It, it caused me to get closer to God. It caused me, I think, to feel a little bit more courageous in sharing my story. So that was, you know, to answer your question, another reason why I didn't, I didn't mind sharing my story in the book because alongside theirs, because they didn't mind sharing theirs with me, you know? And even some of the girls that I was able to go back to and say, hey, I'm writing this book, you know, part of your story will be in here, but, it, you know, nobody will know it's you. But, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, you want to, want to interview me some more you know I mean they they want to share they're excited and there's no pretense and no um they're they're not trying to cover anything up even in their wrestling with God you know they're like oh you know I think God is a woman or you know they just just say whatever you know And, and they don't they don't hold back and and that's a gift that was a real gift to me and I always said you know if I ever had a platform to be able to share um, their stories and how I've been blessed by, and then I'm I'm going to use it, and then you know, lo and behold, the opportunity to write the book came about. But I do feel like, you know, in sharing our stories, we open up the possibility of healing someone else, right? You know, there's there's the beginning of the book. I put the little quote: "People resist by telling their story." You know, with bell hooks, but storytelling and sharing our narratives is so important. You know, that's why the the Me Too movement is, you know sparked sparked so much why because somebody would share their story and somebody else would say me too you know like um and I I think that here I've seen that a lot just from girls that even though the book is more adult um girls that have read the book and and said you know what I can relate to her I'm her too you know and then that caused them to share more about their story and then someone else you know was like wait a minute you know finds a commonality in there that's a domino effect so I'm hoping that it will heal other people through reading their stories, but then also give them the courage to be able to be honest enough with their own narratives and that, that hopefully through their honesty that that would cause some sort of a domino effect of truth and authenticity you know, from others. That's great. Thank you so much, Christy. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Ni Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.